0: it's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lorne, your host. It's in the news everywhere talking about immigrants and welcoming the stranger. Well, that's the name of the book by Matthew Sorens and Jenny Yang. It's called Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio, Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton stage rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. Welcome
1: to the program. Thank you very much for having me.
0: So when did you write this book, actually?
1: Well, so we wrote the first edition of this book. Uh, It came out in the beginning of 2009, and so we were writing it for a year or so before that. But we've really thoroughly updated the book. It's probably about half new content uh, because so much has changed with immigration in the last decade. Um, and so we've been writing over the, and updating it over the past several months, and it'll be formally out, I guess, uh, in July.
0: Yes, because what's happening in the news? I mean, are you surprised? This has to be a dream for you as an author that it would be this timely—the subject of immigration—and what's happening in our country with the uh, the Trump administration? It was an unpopular move with uh, Democrats and Republicans and uh, and Christians alike. And so, uh, where do we start here?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, I would much prefer that the issue would just you know go away. In that. I certainly would not want children being taken away from their parents or some of the other things that are happening. But if we can use that opportunity to uh, highlight that this isn't actually actually an issue that, you know, for Christians in particular, is an issue we should be thinking about biblically. I, I hope we can get that message out and hopefully it does shape the way that people respond when these crises flare up, which unfortunately seems to happen every few months. There's another immigration story in the news that is, um, you know, has draws strong opinions on all sides.
0: Now, recently you were at the border. Is that correct? Can you talk about that at all?
1: Yeah. Earlier this week, um, because of what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, as a result of this uh, zero-tolerance policy that the Attorney General put into place a a couple months ago now, uh, we decided at World Relief that we wanted to go see what we could learn and, and more than anything, just draw attention to this this policy, which uh, has now been sort of partially undone but not completely um, by the President's executive order. on on wednesday i guess it was um but we still think this is a really concerning new policy it basically is taking away discretion from federal law enforcement so that everyone who is apprehended at the border, uh, even those who are seeking asylum, which is lawful under U.S. law, and even those with children would, would be charged criminally. And so they've shifted now with this executive order what they intend to do. There's some legal questions here is to go rather than separating children from families, they're going to detain children with their parents, which is, I suppose, marginally better. But our fundamental view is that actually kids don't belong in jail. And when there's not a reason to think there is a public safety threat or anything like that, uh, we we think the appropriate thing would do would be to give those people an asylum hearing as our laws require. And if you know there are if they have family who can help support them in the, while they wait, or there's church groups along the border, I visited with some of them while I was in El Paso and, and I see it the last few days. Um, we fundamentally don't think that children should be in detention facilities, not summer camp,
0: as Laura Ingram had said. <laughs>
1: It's, it's not summer not camp. Not summer and, camp. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, and, and that's not to say that it's exactly, you know, it, it's the the facilities you've seen in television, and, and we were outside of one of them, not inside, but you've seen inside of, you know, stone, uh, cement floors, and and barbed wire or, you know, fencing or that sort of thing. Those are processing facilities, and the the longer term facilities are slightly better than that, perhaps, but they are still, they're not. They're not summer camp. They're not a place you want to be. They're not a place children should be. And, they're, and fundamentally, they're not able to, to leave. Like it is, uh, it is jail-like in that sense. And of course, it's better to be with your parents in that situation than to be apart from your parents and not even know where your parents are. So we, we appreciate that the president's moving in that direction. But uh, our view is that we can need to continue to advocate and say there are other options between Detaining children or separating children or simply saying, well, you're in the country now, you're welcome to stay here forever. We think it's appropriate that we have laws that need to be respected. Uh, but the law does allow people to allow for asylum. And if it takes some time to process those claims, uh, you know, e- even if it's necessary, if, if the concern is these people might not show up for their their asylum hearing. You can, for pennies on the dollar compared to the cost of detention, put an ankle bracelet on someone. And those those programs have been found to be very effective at ensuring that people do come back for their court hearing. And you mentioned
0: – sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry.
1: Many of them will eventually you know, be allowed to stay because they meet the qualifications under law um, for an asylum claim. Others will not be allowed because they don't meet the qualifications. And, of course, that's somewhat subjective as well. There's human beings making those determinations. But – Everyone deserves due process and deserves to be treated as a human being made in God's image in the, in that process. And
0: that's what you bring up in the back of the book. It says immigration is one of the most complicated issues of our time. You mentioned voices on all sides argue strongly for action and change. Christians find themselves torn between the desire to uphold laws and the call to minister to the vulnerable. And I should tell our audience right now that Matthew Sorens, on the line with us here, uh, is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief and the National Coordinator for for the Evangelical Immigration Table. Can you tell us a little bit about those two?
1: Yeah, so World Relief uh, has been around since the 1940s. We started uh, actually in response to a migration crisis uh, with the people who were displaced uh, as refugees after World War II in Europe. And ever since that time, our mission has been to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And we do that globally, um, but including in the United States, where as as we talk about the most vulnerable, we've particularly focused in on refugees and other immigrants. And we work with local churches in various locations throughout the United States to help them love their immigrant neighbors, love their, you know, Welcome and and help serve refugees as they're arriving. And then uh, the Evangelical Immigration Table is a larger coalition that World Relief was a help, was a Part of helping to start probably back in 2012. Uh, it also includes the National Association of Evangelicals, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the Council on Christian Colleges and Universities, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, a bunch of other groups that basically all came together and said, you know, as Christians, as, e- as evangelical Christians in particular, we take the Bible as our top authority. The Bible is really clear that we are called to love. And welcome immigrants. It's also clear that we should be, you know, respecting the rule of law. We think we can bring those pieces together, both in the terms of how we encourage folks in local churches to interact with their immigrant neighbors, but also in terms of how we address questions of immigration policy. So we've uh, had a statement of principles that's been signed by, by several thousand pastors at this point and lots of national Christian leaders really across the theological spectrum. Uh, probably kind of across the political spectrum as well, who have said these are some core foundational principles that are consistent with biblical values that we think should be guiding Congress as they move towards longer term solutions to our immigration policy challenges.
0: So translation, Christians don't like it.
1: Well, I mean, I think the, you know, Christians have been have complex views in their how they respond to immigration issues. You can find polling, for example, that finds that 70% of evangelical Christians in particular, uh and probably be higher among Catholics or mainline Protestants, but 70% of evangelical Christians say we should have immigration reforms that include an earned pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, which is one of the pieces that we've advocated for a long time. But on the flip side, you can also find a poll that says 75% of white evangelical Christians, and that's an important qualifier, 75% of white evangelical Christians say we don't have any obligation to take refugees fleeing persecution as a nation. Um, and that's the group most likely to make that claim. I mean, if you look at Americans as a whole, most do think we have a moral obligation to care for refugees. Yeah,
0: so you were mentioning, I was going to say just a brief, it is complicated, and uh, I was going to say that you know the White House had mentioned uh, there was a biblical mandate for doing what they did. Did, did you cringe that or is that is that is it true is there a biblical mandate for the scripture they use to talk about immigration or is that uh where do you stand with that
1: yeah i think cringe is probably close to my reaction when i remember i was walking down the street and i checked twitter when i saw that the attorney general had made that comment and I, I called a friend and... Where's that wow. in the scriptures, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, it is a little bit disheartening. And I think... It, it, so the Attorney General, uh, he actually cited Romans chapter 13, which says that everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, it's, it's a passage that basically speaks to how we interact with the government that God has established. I don't know any Christian theologian who would interpret that the way that the Attorney General seems to to mean whatever the government says is right, and you should just do it, and we should just enforce it. It's always right. And I mean, one reason to think that that's not the right interpretation is that the Apostle Paul, who wrote that, you know, Roman book of Romans, spent you know a good part of his life and wrote several epistles from jail on the wrong side of unjust laws so and we could look at other examples in the bible shadrach meshach and abednego who arguably were subject to the governing authorities and that they went to a fiery furnace but they did not obey an unjust law that told them to worship idols or you know we could there's various examples hmm. that said i don't want to completely dismiss the principle that that Romans 13 and this command to be subject to the governing authorities is irrelevant to the debate around immigration. I think Romans 13 tells us what the the proper role of government is and it's, it's, it's for the common good. It says in Romans 13, and mm
0: -hmm.
1: it says in Romans 13 that if, if you were doing good, the government should not be a terror to you. And to me, that actually speaks to, if you look at the recent policy with, you know, taking children from their parents, even in reportedly in some cases, uh, taking children from their parents under the pretense of going to take them for a bath and then not bringing them back. I mean that is just horrific. That mm-hmm. is a terror to me as a, I, I, you know I tremble thinking about that as a dad. And that means to me that the government in this case is not fulfilling its God-ordained purpose. And part of our role as citizens in a democracy is to speak into that and to call the the policies towards what would be a more just and compassionate policy.
0: What are they trying to accomplish? I mean, of course, this is confusing and it's dreadful for many people. They're speaking up because there appears to be... Major injustice in the eyes of the American people, maybe even the world, and witnessing what they're seeing about immigration and the border. But in all fairness to the government, what what is it that the main thing that they're trying to accomplish, at least? Maybe they're not doing it exactly the way we want, but uh, you know, what what is their agenda, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think there's been two responses to that from really from different parts of the federal government, within the, the current administration in particular. Um, the first would be this policy is necessary to keep people who are coming and claiming to, to have a, an asylum claim, claiming that they are fleeing persecution, which might qualify them for legal status under our laws. It's necessary to make sure that they are not misrepresenting that claim and basically sneaking into the country. Uh, so the idea is if you, if you don't detain these people with or without their children, then they're just going to enter the country and we'll lose them forever, even though they may not actually actually qualify as refugees under the law. And my response to that would be, well, then put an ankle bracelet on them if, if we really think that's a legit concern, because we have there's been studies on this by the federal government that more than 90% of people in that program will return for their court date. It's, you know, it's a very high level of compliance. The other argument that we've heard from the Attorney General, um, from the Chief of Staff at different points, although it's, this has specifically been repudiated by the Secretary of Homeland Security, this is not the reason, so we get mixed messages, is that this is designed as a deterrent. Basically, the idea is if if people are afraid of having their kids taken from them, they won't come to the United States. I see. And I think that's, I would say that's wrong, and wrong on two levels. Wrong on a moral level in that we shouldn't use small children as a deterrent for something that is lawful under U.S. law to seek asylum. Like, we just shouldn't do that. It's wrong um, to subject children to that kind of trauma, but it's also probably wrong on a a factual level. Like it probably will not work. Um, It it may work if someone is coming because they'd like to have, you know, see what the United States is like and maybe visit Disneyland, Um, but that's not the typical scenario of Central American individuals who are being who are seeking asylum at the U.S. border. I've spent a lot of time in Central America, Hmm. including in El Salvador recently. Uh, There are people with very serious fears of persecution of and the. And concerns that their lives are at risk, and if, if you think that your son's or your daughter's life is going to be taken from them, they're going to be killed. You'd rather go to the United States and be separated from them, even or detained with them, than stay and be killed. So if it's it true, people, maybe maybe it's to go to a different place. Like I was in Costa Rica last month, where friends of mine have hosted Salvadoran families in their home. Salvadorans are going to Costa Rica. They are going to other countries besides the U.S. But it won't keep you from fleeing if you're facing a, a real legitimate f- threat of persecution.
0: The political platform is that uh, people who are legal immigrants are not their best, if you will, in countries. A lot of times they're criminals. There could be uh, illegal immigration, I mean, in human trafficking that uh, you mentioned in your book that way. So is are they trying to do some good here? I know it's not a popular decision from the White House and uh, and among people, The again, the travesties and injustices, but in the end, trying to... Again, finding out what they're trying to accomplish is you, you're going to, I'm sure, offend a lot of people because you're I mean, these things you mentioned, human trafficking and uh, between uh, illegal immigration and so forth. So how, what, what is your answer to all this?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a legitimate concern. And actually, if you look at human trafficking in the United States, uh, immigrants are usually the victims of it, or at least disproportionately are victims. And when you look at labor trafficking, 95% of victims are of human trafficking in the U.S. are immigrants, most of them immigrants who are here unlawfully. And that's because they're often afraid to go to law enforcement when they're the victim of a crime, which is part of a challenge. I do think in terms of the current debate around the border, it's really important to know that legally, there's a distinction between trafficking and smuggling. Uh, they're both... Unlawful, But trafficking doesn't actually have to do with transportation. It's not about going across the border. Trafficking refers to making someone to work under situations of force, fraud or coercion. So it actually can happen to U.S. citizens and does happen to U.S. citizens. Um, It does happen to immigrants as well. And sometimes smugglers are also traffickers. But a smuggler under the law can also be a parent who's bringing their child into the country illegally. Um, and I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying it's legal. It is unlawful. But the intention and the effect on the child are certainly very different than someone who is you know, taking someone and forcing them into prostitution or forcing someone to work in a farm uh, without pay. It's very different to have your six-year-old with you as you cross the border and in the effort, you know, the motivation is to help your child, not to harm them.
0: Where do you stand biblically here? I mean, you have the biblical mandate to care for immigrants. You talk about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and how much of your book is divided from a a scriptural perspective and, of course, political and – you know what's your passion for for obviously being the US director of church mobilization for world relief and the national coordinator of the evangelical immigration table where's your passion for all this
1: yeah no i love that question because i mean we tend up talking a lot about policy almost whenever we talk about this issue because that's the, that's the lens that we've as americans as american christians sort of that's how we talk about this issue. But my larger concern, and really I think the primary reason Jenny and I wrote this book, Welcoming the Stranger, is to challenge the church that, yes, the government has its role and it's it's fair and appropriate as citizens to speak into that role. But I want to make sure the church isn't missing its role. Because if we only think about this as a policy issue or as a political issue and land on different sides of a, of a, of a political debate – we might miss our role, which is to love the people in front of us, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Mm-hmm. And Jesus makes pretty clear in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, that that neighbor whom we're called to love isn't just necessarily someone from your same country or someone who's of your same religion or you know the same language. It could be just about anyone who's in need. Uh, I think it's very hard to argue from from the Gospels that our neighbor would exclude someone who might have broken a law at some point, who was unlawfully present in the country. Uh, Our call is to love and to welcome people, and we can do that while respecting the law. There's nothing in the law that says if you suspect someone is undocumented, then you can't have them in your English class, or you can't have them over for a meal, or you can't share the gospel with them, or you can't, frankly, receive the gospel from them, because many of these people are brothers and sisters in Christ who have a lot to teach us about following Jesus, because they've had a much harder path of that in countries where it's much more difficult to be a follower of Jesus.
0: And if we change, we have to get rid of of all the anthems and all the song the home of the free and the, and the brave and the,
1: that's, you right, know, that's right everything yeah. on the dollar
0: bill and god we trust and i mean like you said it may be complicated immigration but uh you know to be a god-fearing nation and to pride yourself with uh, the, the biblical precedents that you mentioned uh you know you kind of have to lean towards the side of the bible if you're going to be a biblical nation is that right
1: yeah, I mean, I think that we have this history and this legacy in the United States, and it's not to say it's a clean legacy by any means, because throughout our history, we've both, you know, we've said, "Give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free," but even as that, you know, that 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 sonnet was written by Emma Lazarus, our country was passing laws to start restricting who could come to the United States. So the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 basically said, "You're welcome here, make your life here, unless you're Chinese." Um, you know, we have those these this sort of a. a there's a, a duality in how we've responded to immigrants throughout our history. But I think the better natures of our national heritage are to say we're a country that can take a lot of people with a lot of economic opportunities, with freedoms that will draw people from all over the world. And historically, and I think there's a strong case that so we try to make it in the book today, those immigrants have made America stronger, both economically, but also in terms of our culture, in terms of our, our values, because we attract people who hold those values and are drawn to those values of our, our constitution. Throughout from all over the world, and there have always been people who said, No, this group of people is different than the last ones. I mean, you saw this a hundred years ago with a lot of Protestant Christians who said, Catholics cannot possibly become Americans, like they're loyal to the Pope, they are just completely alien to democratic values, they, they just can never possibly fit in. And there's not a lot of Americans saying that today. Um, likewise, you but you would find a lot of Americans saying that about Muslims today uh, that they, you know, somehow they are just cannot possibly become. American, They can't hold to American values. But our what our American values are not – they may be consistent with biblical values, certainly that I, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights is both a biblical and an American value. But our Constitution also makes really clear that we don't have a state religion. We don't Matthew. have one –
0: I'm um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, do you, do you think this is going to divide our nation? Do you think it's going to divide the way that we interact with other countries? I mean, uh, you know, we would always set a precedent uh, standing out and doing what's good and right and just, as you mentioned in your book, uh, as opposed to some other countries, perhaps. But how do you think this is going to handle, you know, the America and international relations? How's that going to play out?
1: It's a really good question because uh, uh, immigration is really a foreign policy issue as as well as a domestic policy issue. And I do worry. I mean, I've seen this even just having spent time in Latin America recently. The reputation of the United States outside the U.S. is very much harmed when we're viewed as being hostile to people from particular countries. And that has foreign policy impacts. Uh, it, It is not in our interest economically to be alienating our allies and so I think it's and it also it minimizes our ability to diplomatically pressure other countries to do what we think is the right thing. So for example, you know, if we're taking far fewer refugees right now than we were 2 years ago. We're done, this year it'll be about 22,000 total compared to about 100,000 2 years ago. That makes it harder for us to go to an ally like Jordan and say you need to keep your doors open to people fleeing violence in Syria. Because they've taken in, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people in Jordan, far, far more than the US has um, from that crisis in Syria. But we lack the moral credibility to ask them to do more when we are saying we're going to do far, far less. How does this
0: whole thing play out as far as with presidents? You know how in Disney World they have presidents row? Where they yeah. go down all the different history of the president. So, I mean, in all fairness to President Trump, where we are in uh, the history of of the world, but uh, we go back to uh, President Nixon, or if you want to go to Carter, and, and uh, uh, President Clinton, President Obama. Has there been all these changes that uh, President Trump inherited? A uh, uh, kind of like a tricky mess, or has this door been open for a while?
1: He absolutely did inherit a tricky mess, and I think that's important to acknowledge. And there have been both what I would consider good and bad changes in immigration policy under both Democratic and Republican administrations. So, for example, President Clinton passed a law or signed a law in 1996, and it had some Republican support in the Congress as well. But he signed it that I think is actually significantly responsible for a lot of the immigration challenges we see today. Um, It created a 10-year bar to re-entry for people who have entered the country unlawfully and leave. Well, the effect of that, probably unintentionally, was to encourage people to – it almost locked people into the United States. Because you didn't trigger the bar unless you left. So people came unlawfully once and stayed, which really disrupted what was more of a circular migration pat, uh, pattern previously, where people might come, work six months, and then go home, especially for those from Mexico. So I think there's been really negative uh, pieces of legislation under Democratic presidencies and under, under Republican presidencies. I do think, I don't think we've ever seen the scope of immigration being challenged in such a way as we are today. And really, one of the interesting shifts is. The, the the White House has been quite clear in legislation they've called for recently that they want to dramatically reduce legal immigration. So the debate has sort of shifted to how do we respond from – the debate has shifted mm-hmm. from how do we respond to illegal immigration. That's still part of the debate. But now, I mean, just a few days ago there – yesterday, actually, as we're recording this, there was a vote that got, had that most, most – you know, it didn't pass, but it had about half of the votes, just shy of half the votes in the House of Representatives, to cut legal immigration to the United States by 45 percent or so. Wow, um, as much. As, so that's the debate that wasn't happening 10 years ago. And that it's frankly a debate that is puzzling to economists who think, oh, actually, we need more workers right now. I mean, our unemployment rate is such that there are more job openings in the country than there are people looking for work. It's not a time to cut back on legal immigration. But that is the proposal from, from a, an increasing number of members of Congress that I, I find very troubling. and I actually think it exacerbates unlawful migration because you'll see that people then feel like they have no choice, but there's a job there if they get there or there's safety there if they get there. And people will come through means other than lawful channels to get. All right.
0: Address. And with just 30 seconds remaining, what kind of nation will this be if we let everybody in and there's no, you know, resistance?
1: No, that's a, I want to be really clear. I'm not suggesting and, and we're not with the book suggesting we let in everyone. We're saying we could let in more than our our current restrictions do, and it would actually benefit the United States as well as the people coming. Where the number is is kind of a tricky question. I think it'd be short-sighted to put one number and put it into law, because our economy changes with time, and the geopolitical dynamics change with time. But I think we could be more generous and still have reasonable limits on how many people come to the United States.
0: Matthew Sorens, our special guest, the author of the book, Welcoming the Stranger. It's revised and expanded justice, compassion, and truth in the immigration debate. Very timely if you're not on CNN, Fox, or any of the other channels you ought to be because <laughs> at this particular time this is the subject of the hour we appreciate you being on the messiah community radio talk show thanks for coming on
1: thanks for the invitation
0: our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics Bayer dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology And by Hamilton Stands, founded in 1883 in Hamilton, Ohio. Hamilton Stands is the oldest music and instrument stand maker in the world. They offer a broad range of sheet music stands, band and orchestra instrument stands, and combo stands, including mic stands, guitar and keyboard stands, and accessories. In fact, the broadcast you're listening to is made using a Hamilton Stage Rocker mic stand. Visit HamiltonStands.com.